morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Peter Husey, and I'm Director of Strategic Deterrent Studies here at the Mitchell Institute, and welcome to the Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense Forum series, and we are pleased today to have Dr. Stephen Blank. Dr. Stephen Blank is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, where he specializes in Russian foreign policy and defense policy issues, as well as European and Asian security. He formerly served as a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, and prior to that, he was professor of Russian National Security Studies at the U.S. Army War College at their Strategic Studies Institute. I want to welcome you back, Dr. Blank, uh, to speak to us once again. Thank you for making the time to uh, talk with us. I'd like you to start by giving some remarks to us, uh, opening about 20 minutes, and then we'll go to our audience uh, to our audience, feel free to raise your hand using the function on the app uh, or submit a question in the Q&A window anytime during the discussion. And we'll get questions in the second half of our presentation. So over to you, Dr. Blank, and welcome again from the Mitchell Institute. Thank you, Peter. It's a great honor to speak again on behalf of the Mitchell Institute on a day that is uh, full of important uh, international security information and an anniversary. Uh, for those of you who may not have remembered, today is the 82nd anniversary of the infamous Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that basically generated world, started World War II. And it, when that, when you take that into account with, you know, the Afghanistan story, all the natural disasters that are occurring as a result of climate and environmental change, and actually degradation, we may add, as well as all the other existing security challenges, uh, it becomes clear that if we neglect these challenges and fail to understand them, we pay a very high price. And the price that gets higher, the more we defer understanding and re res reckoning with them. I'm going to be talking today about one of these issues, that is the Russian approach to nuclear weapons. And I'm going to be talking about two different examples. One is situation in Ukraine and around the Black Sea, which, as you all know, is a very hot spot these days. Uh, the British phone up earlier this year, the Russian buildup around Ukraine, and the fact that the Russians actually faked a, a Anglo-Dutch uh, freedom of navigation operation to make it look like they were under attack indicates the kinds of things that can go wrong. And uh, if they go wrong there, they could well be nuclear because since the invasion of Crimea, Russia has deployed hundreds of nuclear-capable platforms, land, air, and sea, into the Black Sea. So we're going to be talking about how Russia views the use of nuclear weapons in its national security strategy. Now, other speakers, I believe Mark Snyder will be telling you exactly what they're building and how much and how that violates previous treaties. I'm going to be talking about the strategy. And nuclear weapons are critical to every aspect of Russian military and national security strategy, including gray area operations uh, or what is called hybrid warfare, though I don't like that term. The purpose, according to the Russian government, of nuclear weapons is homeland security, which they state is to deter attacks on Russia. But in practice, what that means is that it also is an attempt to deter Western responses to the so-called gray area operations, operations below the threshold of a de declared war with NATO, yet where Russia runs the risk that something might happen, example being the invasion of Crimea. We tend to forget that nuclear weapons were brandished as deployed, and, and Putin made all kinds of statements about using them, during that crisis, and then every exercise that the Russians do when they're about to do their annual big exercise, which will be the West exercise of Zapad 2021, nuclear weapons play a part. That is, within the next couple of weeks, we are going to see the entire Russian army in the West, some 200,000, and Belarusian army, some 200,000 people mobilized to do an exercise. And while they are talking about the exercises of the conventional forces, the nuclear forces from the Arctic to the Black Sea, will be exercised as well, and not by accident. 
The purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter NATO from doing anything that the Russians might care to do with conventional weapons in and around their neighborhood or even beyond the borders of the Russian Federation. For example, their operation in Syria, which has now lasted six years. And although it has won militarily, has not gotten anywhere near a political resolution. So they're still there. So it allows Russia to threaten its neighbors to undertake military actions with impunity. And it, it be, gives the lie to the concept that there's no use for nuclear weapons except to deter other nuclear weapons. Now, there's a lot of talk uh, among uh, many sectors of the uh, disarmament community in this country that the sole purpose of nuclear weapons should be to deter other nuclear weapons. And there's no doubt that nuclear weapons deter nuclear attacks. The problem is Nobody but the arms control uh, proponents of sole use believe that the sole use of nuclear weapons is to deter nuclear attacks. For Russia, the purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter conventional attacks and to provide an opportunity for Russia, if need be, to carry out its own conventional operations, as is the case in Ukraine or Syria, or if necessary, to strike first, and first strike is part of the Russian national doctrine, with nuclear weapons against uh, forces threatening and challenging Russia. In the case of the Ukraine and the Black Sea, Moscow believes the Black Sea should be a closed sea, that it dominates, that, as Mr. Putin has said, Ukraine really is part of Russia. It has no business being an independent state. And it has no capacity for, or right to self-government as a result. And because of these uh, assertions, which drive Russian policy, and because of its actions in Crimea, Moscow has, since 2014, deployed hundreds, if not thousands, of weapons to Crimea, many of which, land, sea, and air, are dual-capable. And more of these kinds of dual-capable weapons are coming in all the time. For example, they're deploying TU-22 bombers to the Black Sea, uh, or at least moving them in and out. And those are long-range bombers that have a nuclear capability and could target not only all of Ukraine, but all of Europe, much of the Middle East and Africa, and depending on where they're deployed, much of the continental United States. I'm going to come back to that because that's a crucial point. So the nuclear weapon creates a screen for Moscow behind which it can act freely with impunity at the conventional level. And therefore, nuclear weapons back up all Russian claims to great power, both rhetorical and in terms of actual kinetic or other military operations. We need to keep that in mind. In other words, the whole phenomenon of what is called hybrid war or gray area phenomena would not be possible for Moscow, given its current understandings of these phenomena, unless it had the nuclear weapon to back them up. And as they believe themselves to be inferior conventionally, and most experts agree with that assessment, they are going to continue to prioritize the building of nuclear weapons in order to achieve that freedom of maneuver in and around the former Soviet Union, and beyond its borders as part of its power projection strategy. For example, and this will be the last point I make in this context, they are now getting a naval base in Sudan, and you may ask yourself why. Well, among other reasons, they want to be able to strike at American and Western ships in the Indian Ocean, because for the U.S. and Navy, the Indian Ocean has long been a potential platform for striking at Russia uh, with missiles, in case it ever comes to that. The agreement with Sudan indicates that they want to do this because it says, among other things, that Russia has the right to bring in nuclear-powered ships, which means they're nuclear-powered submarines, which are strike platforms and which are also anti-ship platforms against Western naval vessels. So this is not just a threat within the, United, uh, within the former Soviet Union, but it is now part of the overall power projection strategy. And in that context, we can turn as well to look at the Arctic. Now, most of the people who are writing about the Arctic today and about the Russian buildup 
many of my colleagues and people I know have written, and it's all over the web, you can easily find these statements, that the prevailing reason for the buildup is deterrence. It's defensive. Now, admittedly, Russia has a lot of maritime real estate to defend in the Arctic, as well as the Russian territory above the Arctic Circle and thus Russian homeland. But the evidence of these deployments is not defensive. The primary purpose of these deployments is increasingly offensive, targeting the United States, both continental U.S. and Alaska, Canada as a result as well, and all of our NATO allies in Europe with missile strikes, which could or could conceivably be nuclear. Once again, we're talking about dual-use capabilities. Now, the main mission of the Russian maritime and air forces and maybe ground forces in the Arctic may be homeland defense and the building of what is called an anti-access uh, area, den area denial, uh, anti-access ADA2 uh, system, land, air, and sea. But as Henry Kissinger said, there's nothing as offensive as a Russian on the defensive. And if you look at the strike capabilities that are being placed in the Arctic, they include long-range air, like the Tu-22, Tu-160, I believe, and Tu-95, long-range strike-capable submarine platforms and maritime platforms, including nuclear-capable weapons, not just the, the boomers, that is nuclear-capable submarines, but also air-based missiles who can target Canada, continental U.S., or on the other side of the ocean, uh, the Pacific, that is Alaska, as well as all of Europe. These weapons are both maritime and aerial. They are counter-force and counter-value. Uh, for example, the Poseidon, as it is called, the, uh, or the Canyon 6, as it was named, the uh, underwater UUV, that is under, underwater unmanned vehicle, that is uh, a massive nuclear weapon that could take out the whole harbor, Baltimore Harbor, at one strike, or other civilian targets as well. These targeting capabilities are rehearsed in Russian exercises. They are deployed on exercises, for example, into the North Atlantic and beyond. And as I said, their mission is to hold the United States, Canada, and all of Europe at risk, again, allowing Russia, or so Russia hopes, to be able to do what it wants to do with impunity elsewhere. Now, you may ask yourself, why are they building this capability when their ICBMs are perfectly capable of striking the United States? There is no missile defense that works against those ICBMs. The uh, missile defense systems we have built are thin. They are small in number, relatively speaking and are targeted on Iran and or Korea, North Korea. By the laws of physics and by every briefing known to man that we have given the Russians, those missile defenses cannot take out the Russian first or second strike ICBM capability, which means that the United States, like Russia, is in a state of vulnerability and has been for years. That is the paradigm of what is called mutual assured destruction and strategic stability, that neither side can attempt the first strike because the other side has a second strike capability. So a first strike will avail you nothing, but it does hold the other side hostage so that it doesn't get the idea to, to do this. What the Russians are trying to do, I would argue, and several of my colleagues like Mark Schneider and Peter also argue, is to undermine that strategic stability. And the reason they're doing that is because they believe today, as in the 1980s, that they need a requirement 
for either a maritime, sea-based, or an air-based capability that can strike the continental United States and Canada, as well as Europe and Alaska and the Pacific, because we have built those capabilities. They see our missile defenses as capabilities of offensive missiles to strike Russia. Now, it's physically impossible. This has been briefed over and over again by the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations. Presumably the Biden administration has said the same thing. Nobody in Russia buys this. They have, for their own reasons, which we can discuss in the Q&A, bought into the worst possible threat assessment. They also believe that the United States global strike capability, which is a conventional capability, is so powerful that it can strike and take out their command control communications, computers, etc. C4, ISR, command control computers, communications, intelligence, uh, surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities. That's not the case. Again, those capabilities just aren't there yet and are probably never going to be there, despite all that you read about fancy capabilities. And the Russians have decided, therefore, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to have a capability that can strike you as well. So here we are. But as a result, strategic stability is imperiled. It goes back very much to the idea, as I said, that Russia is always going to adopt the worst-case threat assessment by virtue of its institutional and ideological uh, makeup. It believes that it has been at war with the West for the last 16, 17 years, if not longer. And since it is conventionally inferior, it believes it has to build nuclear weapons and have a first strike capability that it can and will use first to hold the United States and the rest of the world at risk. The view that the United States and Russia must remain shackled to each other, like prisoners in leg irons who cannot escape this relationship, by the mechanism of mutual assured destruction, that was a hallmark of the Cold War, drives Russia's thinking about the United States in general and about nuclear weapons in particular and about the Arctic. And just as they see that we have a capability that could strike them from a long range, either by sea-based or air-based platforms, that's what they're trying to build as well. This, again underscores the point that sole use of nuclear weapons to deter other nukes doesn't figure into their calculations because they're afraid as much of conventional missiles as they are of our nuclear capabilities. And furthermore, they believe in redundancy. They are building and have built MIRVs, again, multiple independent reentry vehicles, which are allowed now under the existing START uh, Treaty, which is, I think, a terrible regression from where we were before, and are building as well these air and maritime capabilities to strike at these targets and hold Europe and the United States at risk. Furthermore, they will continue to do so despite the economic stagnation of the Russian economy and, and all the other terrible socioeconomic problems including COVID-19, that now now afflict Russia. That is their priority, and they're going to continue to do so. And therefore, we have to be aware of this threat. We will need to take countermeasures to deal with it. And we will have to understand that the Russian buildup in the Arctic is not primarily defensive, but rather offensive. And is carried out in accordance with the dictates of Russian national security strategy, the newest version of which is now available in English on the web and from Mr. Putin's website in in the English language, as are the uh, nuclear weapons statements of June 2020, which I've written about and others have as well, indicating readiness for a first strike. That means that we may want to pursue arms control initiatives of one sort or another and break away from the Cold War paradigm. 
but Moscow will not allow that to happen. As I said, they believe that the United States and Russia must be shackled together like prisoners who cannot move far apart from each other. And the two of them must be bound together in this uh, structure of mutual assured destruction based on a priori hostility of the two systems, no matter what American and Western policy is. These principles, therefore, negate a lot of the ideas that you are going to hear from the arms control community about sole use so that we can dispense with one leg of the the triad and do so safely. Uh, That's not the case. And on this sober anniversary uh, of the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which led to a war, and in the face of all the other natural and uh, international relations catastrophes that are happening, we need to be aware of what really is happening out there rather than of idealistic rhetoric, which is unfortunately not based on anything more than hope. And as my uh, old boss when I worked for the Army, General Gordon Sullivan, wrote, hope is not a strategy. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Dr. Blank. Let me uh, go right to some questions that we uh, April 2021, there was an annual threat assessment by the Director of National Intelligence, and he emphasized that Russia is building a diverse, large, and modern set of non-strategic capable nuclear uh, systems capable of delivering nuclear warheads. Could you elaborate a little bit on the purposes for which these Russians' new tactical weapons are being produced and the risks that are they pose to the United States and its allies and partners, especially with respect to the geography of the Arctic? Russia is building somewhere between 20 and 23 different kinds of nuclear weapons at present. Those different programs encompass short-range, in this case, non-strategic nuclear weapons, uh, and intermediate range also would encompass what are called non-strategic nuclear weapons or tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, um, they also included long-range. They also include counter-force, that is, nuclear weapons that target other military targets, or counter-value. Counter-value is that uh, weapons that target civilian targets. Okay, for example, uh, as I, met, I gave the example of Baltimore Harbor before, or, or uh, power plants. We believe that they're building the so-called non-strategic nuclear weapons to compensate for their conventional inferiority, to deny the North Atlantic to NATO and the Arctic, a lot of these weapons are going to be used as anti-ship or anti-sub or anti-air missiles. They are also doing that to threaten European installations as well from the Arctic. If you are based in the Arctic, all of Europe is in, within range. All the way to Turkey uh, or Portugal or Italy all of whom are members of NATO. The uh, tactical nuclear weapons are the first strike weapons. If you look at the Russian statements from uh, last year, June, June 2nd, 2020, again, it's on Putin's website. And he tries to say that, I mean, typically uh, in a circumlocution kind of roundabout way, that you know Russia will strike first if it if it thinks that it's being a, it, it attacked or if it, it will launch on warning. It will uh, strike first if it thinks its government is under attack and so on. Those weapons are there to threaten the United States and its NATO allies or conceivably its allies in Asia, with the prospect that if something breaks out and Russia thinks that it might be losing, we will escalate the nuclear weapons and strike first, forcing you, because you will not be able, be willing 
to withstand what the Russians call the calibrated or assigned damage carried out by these nuclear weapons, tactical nukes. Uh, and that will force an end to hostilities. Now, this is uh, called escalate to de-escalate. It's the wrong term. It's really calling, it's calling escalate to, uh, to win, according to General Hyten, uh, who was a STRATCOM commander, now I think Deputy Chief of Staff of the Joint Chiefs. It's more than even that. It is really an attempt by the Russians, by building all these nuclear weapons that we've talked about, uh, and for scenarios ranging from what we've seen in Ukraine all the way up the line, to preserve escalation control and dominance throughout all the stages of a crisis in order to subject NATO forces and the United States to that control. In order, the Russians will retain strategic control of the, uh, of, of the whole crisis. It's basically a crisis management operation, but it's crisis management through the threat of escalation. Understood. We have a, a big series of questions, which I'll get to, but related to what you just said, China and Russia, you have written, are cooperating militarily together in a number of areas, including the Arctic. What's the, are the Russian and Chinese purposes and strategies similar with respect to their nuclear arsenals? Well, that's a huge question. Uh, I don't know that we can answer that question in the space of a few minutes, and I'm not an expert on Chinese nuclear weapons. But what we do know is that there is an enormous program of mutual consultation, which I've written about, going on. It is uh, also clear that the military dimension of this alliance, and I believe it is de facto an alliance, though many of my colleagues don't, uh, that this alliance is growing. Russian and Chinese troops are participating in each other's exercises and now using each other's weapons. The Russians are helping build an early warning missile defense for China, which indicates a very high level of uh, trust and consultation. Uh, China is hacking Russia, so, I mean, that doesn't stop the Chinese from doing that. But we see more and more deeper cooperation at the military level. We see it in Central Asia now with the Afghanistan crisis, as well at, at the political level to deal with the ramifications of that issue. We see cooperation on the Korean issue. And uh, we do we see um, signs of potential cooperation in information warfare as well. So there are reasons to believe that this cooperation might be might extend into some of the nuclear areas. Certainly, early warning is an example. Furthermore, as we now know, China is. Feverishly, is that the right word maybe, building nuclear weapons? Last week it was discovered that there was a third set of uh, silos that China's building, about 400 silos, give or take some, that are going to be housing nuclear weapons. It strikes me as unbelievable, although some analysts say this, that essentially China is building these to play three-card Monty with the United States over its nuclear weapons and just move these weapons around and try to discover in which silo, in which mountain you have nukes. Uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency said two years ago they were on track to double, if not triple, their nuclear weapons. Uh, General Richard's statements indicate he's convinced they're building nuclear weapons at a very rapid rate. And these uh, holes in the ground, these silos that are being built, would seem to corroborate all that. So while it's very unlikely that Russia and China are going to cooperate or target uh, nuclear weapons uh, collectively at at the United States and share their nuclear uh, plans with each other, is nonetheless clearly a rising threat from both of them in the nuclear sphere and a rising threat of overall military cooperation. Steve, um, Dr. Blank, let me go through two kind of responses the U.S. uh, we're talking about here in America. One is to go to a diet and get rid of the land-based ICBMs uh, some, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee has said that he doesn't think we need 
a land-based leg necessarily, and we may have too many nuclear weapons as it is. The other one is, should the United States adopt any additional nuclear strategies to deal with the Russian threat, as you have uh, laid it out? So it's a two-part question. What would the Russian response be if we went to a dyad? Would they seek a preemptive capability against our subs and bombers or or not? And then second, what should be our response to the threat you've laid out in the particularly in the Arctic and elsewhere? Any new strategies that the United States should adopt? Well, uh, I would advise the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee to take these ideas to London, Paris, Tokyo, Seoul, Berlin and so on and see what the reaction is. I think it might, he might learn something. Uh, they, I think our allies would be horrified. Second, if you remove the land-based leg of the triad, you have given the Russians, the, they don't have to build a preemptive capability. They will then have it. That needs to be understood. And that's true for the Chinese as well, because the Chinese are building a triad themselves. And, you know, we are dealing with serious people, who, but they don't think the way we do. And this mistake that if the United States does something, everybody else will understand it for what it is and follow suit because they are moral, rational creatures is just misplaced. And we don't even have to think that way, you know, in the nuclear sphere. I mean, the, 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 the Taliban, uh, you know, they have the same physiological capabilities of thinking that we do. They obviously don't think the way we did, and they sat down and negotiated with the Trump administration and violated everything, and nothing happened to them. So unilateral disarmament doesn't work, plain and simple. And on, and on this date, as I said, among all others, that ought to be understood. Let me you know, uh, okay. Sorry I mean, the Russians will then, you know, it's like the, it's like the talks between the Allies and Stalin in '39, when Stalin says to the British and French, "How many divisions, you know, who's going to fight?" And they say, "Well, we win the Vatican." And the, the, Stalin says, "Aha, the Pope. How many divisions does he have?" Well, if you take out the land force-based nuclear capability, I mean, how many divisions do we have then, so to speak, in the nuclear? Uh, arena. You've given the Russians the preemptive capability. You don't have, they don't have to build anymore. They've got it. Yeah. Agreed. I have a question on the arms control area. And this is a question of do arms control agreements or negotiations fundamentally alter or can they fundamentally alter the character of the Russian strategic objectives that are reflected forces? Because that's always been an, uh, an issue with, in this Start two treaty, we did propose to ban multiple warhead land-based missiles. The problem is the Duma didn't agree to it, and so it never went into force. I think that would have significantly changed the strategic balance. But the question here is, do you think arms control can significantly change this Russian strategic objectives insofar as their building and deploying of nuclear weapons? Arms control changes their capabilities. So indirectly, if an arms control treaty is negotiated and ratified by both sides, or by by all sides, it can change capabilities and then indirectly change objectives because some objectives become no longer feasible. At least in principle, that could be the case. And that could also lead to change in behavior. But uh, as far as this goes, I happen to agree with Colin Gray that arms control agreements are the result of a desire to change behavior that precedes the actual negotiation of the arms control treaty or is coincidental with it, as was the case with Garbachev 35 years ago. Furthermore, an arms control treaty has to be enforced. And again, this does not have to be only with regard to nuclear weapons. Nobody enforced the Versailles Treaty's arms control provisions. Uh You know, we know the British and French were well aware 
of the German-Soviet cooperation in the 20s and up through the middle 30s to evade the agreement by military training. They did nothing about it. The point of an arms control treaty is that it be verified and maintained, and when somebody steps out of line, that he be made to pay for it. I'm not happy with the fact that the Russians violated the INF treaty and nothing has happened. Now, I can make the argument, and the argument has been made, that when we left the INF treaty, because, I mean, a treaty with one signatory is meaningless. When we left the INF treaty, that we didn't need to put INF missiles in Europe. I would have argued that it would, because if you want to bring the Russians back to the nuclear table, the only way to do it is to make them feel that if they are not negotiating, they are going to be under genuine threat. I emphasize genuine, because the threats that they purport to see now from missile defense and global strike, despite the fact that they have fallen completely under the sway of their propaganda, are rather more exaggerated than is actually the case. But if you put intermediate-range missiles, even precision strike in Europe, and they have a flight time of 8, 10, 15 minutes to Russian territory because Moscow violated the INF treaty, for whatever reason, that might sober up some of the thinking in Moscow. Interesting. My last question that I put down, and then we have nine questions I've gotten from our audience. You have once said that Catherine the Great is credited to saying that the best way to secure Russian's borders are to simply expand them. No, the only way. The only way I can defend my frontiers is to expand them. Well, would you elaborate? How has this affected Mr. Putin? Does he have the same philosophy? Okay. Yes, he does. And their ambitions are like Catherine's, to be the strongest power in Europe. I mean, Foreign Minister Lavrov has quoted one of Catherine's advisors approvingly when he said that, you know, not a cannon can be fired in Europe without our knowledge of it. He was talking the 18th century, of course. You have to understand, Putin is the current day incarnation of a Russian Tsar. And the Russian political system, since its founding in the 15th century, has been and remains today. And this is true for the Soviet period, too, although it was disguised by the structure of Soviet power and socialist rule in the Communist Party. A patrimonial autocracy where the Tsar owns the state and where empire is the only conceivable form of state that they know. Putin has gone on record. And I advise your audience to read it again. It's out there. You can find he wrote this long essay. He's written a couple of long essays. He wrote another one basically denying the Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement, even though the papers are out there and we all know it. And again, calling for an alliance with Germany, which is what they've wanted for 250 years. But the new one, the new essay states Ukraine is, as he said to Bush, Ukraine, George, Ukraine is not a state. He claimed to Bush that the territory that they got was a gift. Now he says that we were robbed. Significant difference there. But if Ukraine is not a state, and really they are misguided Russians who, for whatever reason, have been stolen away from the motherland, then nobody is safe there. The only thing restraining Russian power is expediency and counterpower on the part of the West. This is a doctrine of war and empire. Because nobody in Europe wants to be ruled by Russia anymore. You know, the Balts, the Poles, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Hungarians, Romania, Bulgaria, they do not accept that they are part of Russia, that they're going to be ruled from Moscow as they were during the Cold War. Yet Putin insists that Russia is legitimately entitled to and, and needs to have an empire. And this has shown up in their policies. For example, they stated that they're closing the Black Sea from a certain point in time until October 31st of this year to do exercise. In other words, this is our sea. Get out. They're doing the same in the Baltic. 
that they would like to do the same in the Arctic. They've done the same at the Sea of Achotsk once the UN granted their uh, proposal that the Sea of Achotsk be included as Russian territorial waters. So we are dealing with an atavistic even, but certainly imperial mindset. And when you hear this, that Russia must be a great power, it, what it really means is that Russia can only be an empire. And if it's no longer an empire, it's nothing. Understood. And I'm not saying that myself. That's what they said. Understood. Oh, a related question. We had a very interesting question from one of our uh, mm-hmm. Their argument in this is that because Russia only uh, conducts gray area zone attacks so that it's somewhat disputable who is invading Ukraine or Moldova, Georgia, that therefore deterrence actually works, that they're not doing an overt invasion. They're doing it so they can still deny it. So deterrence doesn't come into effect so that in a sense, the only way they can operate with impunity is in the gray zone because if they go any with more heavier forces or more uh, obvious uh, attacks, then deterrence would come in. How would you respond to that? Well, the evidence is against it. Uh, The initial seizure of Crimea, they didn't bother to deny that they were Russian forces, really. I mean, they, they did, but nobody believed it, and it was pretty transparent. And observers... I, I, we're predicting this. I mean, I predicted it in October 2013. I told the Ukrainian parliament then, members of the parliament, that if you sign the agreement with the European Union, Putin will invade. And one of them told me that's what he told the Ukrainian government. So, uh, But when the, when the Ukrainians fought back in August, they committed Russian troops openly. The war against Georgia, again, Let's just, now, if they had gone in with, you know, massive tank armies, which they didn't have in 2014, um, and, and, and divisions, uh, they, they would have uh, perhaps precipitated a longer war. But the original plan in 2014 was to seize the entire Ukrainian coastline because they had troops, special forces troops in Moldova who prepared to march to Odessa after inciting riots there. Uh, the riots were snuffed out in Odessa and the troops never left. But the idea was to collapse Ukraine as a state, and they thought they could do it then. Now, that, again, because they had bad intelligence to a certain degree. But uh, gray area phenomenon does not only mean, uh, you know, the Wagner group or deniable elements. It means... operations that are short of what NATO will respond to. And nobody in NATO was prepared to to respond to Ukraine or to Georgia. So I don't think that argument holds. Now, deterrence holds. We're not seeing an invasion, let's say, of the Baltic states or of Poland. But we are seeing constant pressure on all these states, including nuclear threats. And it is clear that no no Russian leader believes that the territorial boundaries of any state east of Germany are sacrosanct despite the agreements that were signed at the end of the Cold War. And so, and, or that none of the boundaries in the former Soviet Union are sacrosanct despite the several treaties signed among you know, Belarus, the Central Asian states, the Caucasus states, and so on. And now we see wars all over, uh, all over there also. Thank you. I also want to just let our listeners know that on Thursday, August 26th, we will be hosting our next aerospace event on the new OSD EMS-1 plan, and we hope everybody will be able to join us in person and watch uh, our live stream. Uh, our next question had to do with, are we, what are the Russians' attitudes about using nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear state? Because one of the principles the United States has often reiterated is that we would not use nuclear weapons except for against the nuclear power. Now, that's not every administration, but it's been a principle that has been pushed by some. Where are the Russians on this, sir? Well, that, it gets, this gets to uh, several complicated situations because 
There are non-nuclear states in NATO. Germany. But there are nuclear weapons on, on based on in Germany. Uh, there may be nuclear weapons based in Italy also at, say, for example, at Aviano Air Force Base, uh, or in at Naples, uh, Naval Base, uh, so on. Uh, so it, it, it's not clear. What is clear is that while they said they would not launch a first strike under Brezhnev, their military plans called for launching many nuclear strikes against NATO, because we, we, we now have the Warsaw Pact uh, plans, and what's more, attacking nuclear bases in Europe, even if they did so with conventional strikes, I mean, that's a trigger for a nuclear response. So I, I, I'm skeptical that that is as uh, watertight as they claim, or that they actually uh, would refrain from doing that. Now, it depends what, what non-nuclear state we're talking about. Now, if... Uh, you know, if Finland attacked, they might not use nuclear weapons against Finland. Finland's not a member of NATO, but uh, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take that uh, argument to the bank. Another question came up: as what do you think the Russians' attitude is about whether or not Iran gets nuclear weapons? Uh, are, would they facilitate that capability? Are they indifferent to it? Uh, where do you, Where do you think they are? Good question. Um, they have always opposed Iran having nuclear weapons. Uh, they are, they know very well, first of all, that if the Iranians get close to having nuclear weapons, Israel will attack. And that, that sets the stage for a general war, and then, and, and then you're dealing with an ally of the United States. Second, uh, they know that Iran, Iranian nuclearization spawns proliferation all over the Middle East, uh, which is Dangerous. And to them, the most dangerous nuclear weapons in the world right now might be Pakistan, India. They certainly don't want more of that. And also, the more nuclear states there are, the, the less uh, their nuclear status elevates them above everybody else. But they are going to support Iran against the United States because, one, they, want, they, they need to have Iran as a more or less friendly operator on their southern, you know, off the Caucasus and Caspian. And because Iran needs them as an as support against the United States, and they want to prevent the United States from dominating the Middle East. So they're going to thread this needle. But uh, I don't think they will su- transfer nuclear weapons to Iran or support it, although they were doing so maybe to some degree in the 90s, no longer. I don't think that's going to be the case. But they will help Iran arm itself with, nucle- with conventional weapons. And uh, that will be sufficiently dangerous as it is. We have a question here about, are there any legal prohibitions against putting nuclear weapons in the Arctic, which would balance against Russian efforts to move nuclear weapons into the Arctic, other than what they have in Romansk and Vladivostok, if you can call those two submarine bases in the Arctic? Well, I mean... There's no, I mean, first of all, that's, it's their territory. So they have a perfect right to do this. And they've always been, since the nuclear age started, nuclear weapons in the Arctic, because that's the main, uh, the polar basis of their nuclear fleet. But it's also what the capabilities that they're adding to this, uh, are. So we have a right, look, we have a right to do this in Alaska, and we're building missile defenses in Alaska. If the Canadians and the Norwegians who are, or the Danes who are Arctic mem- uh, states and invited, and are members of NATO invited us under the treaty to do so, uh, it, it would probably be legal. We have, uh, we have a warning station in Thule in Greenland, which is, you know, formerly Danish territory. Right. Um, we have stepped up our military, uh, uh, cooperation with Norway. And that's just, you know, the, we've only seen the uh, overt signs of that. We don't know what's uh, uh, be- below the uh, water level, so to speak, uh, uh, in there. So there are, I mean, there are legal 
possibilities for the U.S. to, to, to place nuclear weapons in the Arctic. I mean, the, the real issue is that we, I think strategically, because, uh, you know, the Russians are going to put this stuff in, into their Arctic bases, and there's no way we can stop them. But sure. what we need to do is keep them from getting into the, what is called the high north, uh, North Atlantic. Right. Where they could then easily target not only all of Europe, but Canada and the U.S. Right. We had a comment from uh, someone at the uh, University of Memphis who uh, is handling the ROTC program there. And he wants to say to you that this was very helpful for my seniors as they prepare to study the national security strategy. It's from Lieutenant Colonel Thompson. I wanted to pass that on to you, Steve. Dr. Blank, a very informative uh, set of remarks. Uh, we have another question about have we entered an age of what this uh, writer calls the age of nuclear coercion? in that it comes down to who blinks first and that that is as opposed to stopping people from attacking because for deterrence you prevent people from coming to the defense of their friends, which is what you have explained is what the Russian strategy is. What's your sense of, could we uh, correctly call this a, a new age of nuclear coercion? Well, we've had nuclear coercion since 1945. Understood. I, I don't know that it's a new age. You know, let me give you an example. I mean, I, I said uh, in my talk that the, uh, what I believe the Russians are doing is trying to build a capability that can strike continental U.S. just as they think as we have a capability that can strike Russia. I mean, that's the motive that drives Khrushchev to build missiles in Cuba in 1962, where the metaphor of blinkings originated. Dean Rusk. And that was a case of uh, coercive diplomacy. And it certainly involved the, the threat of nuclear war. Exactly. Uh, we've had the Russians use, look, the Russians are doing this. They, they raised the threat of nuclear strikes, you know, against anybody wanting to come to Ukraine's help in 2014. Um Nuclear coercion is inherent in, in, in the facts of life today. So I don't know that we have a new age of this. And one of the reasons for the Sino-Russian buildups individually is because both of them felt after 1990s that the U.S. was so militarily supreme that it, it challenged them and they had to build up their conventional and and nuclear capabilities, uh, in the Russian case, uh, otherwise they would, they would lose out as great powers. Understood. What's your sense of the impact of the end of the INF treaty with respect to being able to now place missiles in the Arctic that be given the closeness in the Canadian, to not only the Canadian border, but to the continental United States, which goes to the issue you raised which we've talked about at the Cuban Missile Crisis, how quickly they could get something to attack CONUS, the continental United States. What is your sense as to the impact of the INF Treaty going away? It has facilitated uh, the buildup of these forces. But I believe that what we are seeing, I should have said this in the lecture, but I believe that what we are seeing is a classic Russian Military buildup, what, what, what they built up first in the Arctic, and which, which is what led people to say it's purely defensive, is that it, it, they built up fairly, uh, first the purely defensive capabilities, anti-sea, anti-air, and, you know, search and rescue and all these other things that are necessary as the Arctic becomes more navigable and more open to commercial and uh, non-military use in general. Uh, so those capabilities are needed. But they are also preparatory to bringing in the offensive capabilities because they, that way you can bring the offensive capabilities in. And as we've seen in countless studies of Russian military thinking, the anti-air and anti-sea capabilities 
extend the perimeter of where Russia can operate freely, whether we're talking about the air or in the maritime uh, realm, further and further out. We see this in conventional capabilities as well, where there's no nuclear. The Black Sea Fleet, although now it's a nuclear-capable fleet, then goes to form, or, or at least create the basis for the core of what is now the permanent Mediterranean squadron, or Escadra in Russian, which is also has some nuclear-capable uh, ships there. They're building up their bases in Syria. Now, I, I mentioned the base in Sudan. They want bases all along the Red Sea and the Levant and the Mediterranean coast in order to push the envelope where NATO can operate freely back, but also to extend the envelope wherein they can operate freely. I mean, this is a classic Russian sea denial. It's not just that Russian sea denial strategy that by building up defenses, you then create an opportunity and space for offensive capabilities to come in and work behind that. And we have an example in history of how this worked. Uh, those of you are members of your audience who will, who have studied or remember the Yom Kippur War of 1973. The Egyptian army, using Soviet doctrine, crossed the Sinai, took out the Israeli forces on the other side of the uh, Suez Canal, and advanced a certain distance into the Sinai, but stayed there because they stayed within their air defense umbrella that the Soviets had taught them about. So the air defense created an offensive zone where they could operate with superiority, if not freedom. And they took advantage of that. Now, ultimately, the Israelis reversed that situation at a, at a, at a heavy cost. Uh, but, but that's a classic example of Russian-Soviet doctrine. Now, if you translate that to the maritime and aerial uh, domains, you can see the same principles at work. Let me ask you one more question because we're coming toward the end of our session. But the head of NORTHCOM has recently talked about the Russian operations in the Arctic. And his remarks have been laid out by some of the media. What's your sense of, of, of the direction the general is going and some of the issues um, he, he raised? What's your comment on that? I think general, uh, the general accurately depicted the developing threats, because he talked also about the Chinese, which we haven't discussed. He's obviously campaigning for budgetary authorizations to build defenses against that. Now, the question is, uh, we, we may see this in the uh, nuclear posture review that's being developed as we speak. And we may see this also in the uh, Air Force's Arctic strategy and some of the other, maybe the Navy's as well, even possibly the Army's Arctic strategy. An attempt by the U.S. military, not just the Air Force, uh, but North, NORTHCOM, NORAD, uh, Joint Forces Command at Norfolk, which has responsibility for the waters in the North Atlantic. NATO, uh, and the, the maritime branch of UCOM, uh, to come up with a, an across the board, because it can't be just one service, an across the board network of defenses to reduce mitigate, and mitigate because I don't think you can eliminate the threat, though, except by, by arms control treaty, uh, these threats, uh, and to keep the Russians out of the high north from where they could strike with great lethality at any of these three sets, or, or in the Pacific, uh, at Alaska, with these, uh, at any of these targets, that is Canada, U.S., uh, Europe. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Dr. Blank, I want to say thank you, and we have come to the end of this Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense Forum event. A big thank you to our guests, Dr. Blank, and to our audience uh, from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute. Please have a great aerospace day, and we will see you shortly. Again, Dr. Blank, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter.